Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. This early epistle is written to encourage these believers and to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. Paul began this letter by giving thanks to God for them and then Paul commended the wonderful example that these believers had set for others to follow as they excelled in faith, hope, and love, as they passionately shared the good news of Christ with the lost souls all around them, and as they turned away from idols and served the Lord from the heart based on their intense love for Him. Here in chapter 2, Paul is now defending himself and his companions, Timothy and Silvanus, or Silas, against the false teachers and the haters who were lying about him. And here in today's passage, Paul continues to defend himself, his heart, his motives, and his ministry. Let's look at what he says, verse 9. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now remember, Paul is having to defend himself and his friends against the lies of the false teachers and the haters who oppose God and who oppose the men of God. He's done a wonderful job of doing that up to this point, one that the Thessalonians couldn't argue against because they knew. They had seen Paul's heart and his message and his ministry and his love for them, and it was all very clear. And Paul's continuing to defend himself here in verse 9, and the first thing that he says is this, we labored and toiled, which is a great defense. It's a great defense. You remember our labor and toil, laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. What's he talking about? He's talking about physical labor. How when Paul and his friends were in Thessalonica, they made their living by doing their own physical labor and not by receiving money from the Thessalonians. Back in verse 6, when Paul says that they could have made demands as apostles of Christ, this is what Paul is primarily referring to. And even though the Thessalonian church should have supported Paul and his friends financially for the great ministry that they were doing in that city, Paul himself said, no, no, instead... Instead of you guys supporting us financially, we will work for our living while we're ministering with you. (laughs) Why does Paul say that? Because it was an issue in this particular city and at this particular time, and so Paul made sure that it wasn't an issue with him. See, it seems that there were a lot of religious frauds of the day who made a living at selling religion to the gullible people in the marketplace, and not a lot has changed People are still very gullible today, and evil people will use God for their own personal gain at the drop of a hat. Pay me some money, and I'll perform a miracle for you, as the money is given and no miracle is performed. Pay me some money, and I'll entertain you in the name of religion. Pay me some money, and I'll say whatever it is that you want me to say to make you feel better about yourself and your sin, just make sure you pay me the money. So that kind of behavior was... Very popular in that day, and it's popular today as well. But on top of that, Paul says that he didn't want to be any kind of burden to them, and that's his main reason for 
working and not taking any financial support from them. How, how would he and his friends be a burden to them? Well, perhaps they themselves, the Thessalonian church, didn't have much money to give. And financially supporting Paul and Silvanus and Timothy would have been a serious issue for the church in Thessalonica, perhaps at this particular time. But whatever the reason, supporting Paul and his friends would have been a burden for the Thessalonians. And so Paul makes sure that they're not a burden. Instead, look what Paul does. Paul puts the burden on himself. That's a man of God. I mean, think about this. They had to work hard in order to make a living, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, while they were also preaching and teaching and loving and serving and ministering to the Christians in Thessalonica. Look, uh, the typical craftsman had to work a full day, sunrise to sunset, to earn enough money to survive, to earn enough money to get <clears throat> adequate food and lodging. That means that Paul worked by day at a job to make money to survive all day, hard work. And then on top of that, he worked additional hours at ministry by night, which would have been way more than any full-time job. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven 27, I've labored and I have toiled and I've often gone without sleep. Why? Because he had to do the same thing in Corinth when he was there, working and ministering at the same time. And that's why he says laboring night and day here in verse 9, because that's what he had to do in order to make money to live on and to also minister effectively to the people here in Thessalonica. This, think about that. It had to have been relentless. But Paul would rather put the burden onto himself than on others, see. This would also take away any of the false statements of his haters who would have accused him of being greedy or of being in the ministry for money. No, for clearly Paul is not greedy and clearly Paul is not in this for the money since he's not taking any money from them. What work would Paul have done? Tent making. Tent making, that was the trade that Paul was in. Tent makers at that time wove camel or goat hair to produce strips of cloth. They then sewed the strips together to make tents for travelers. That said, many tents at this period were also made from leather, and then others were made from linen, which was manufactured in Paul's hometown of Tarsus. And Paul probably worked with all of those materials. He probably learned his occupation in his youth, and then, by about the age of 15 or 16, he most likely mastered his trade, tent making. One notes that at the conclusion of his apprenticeship, Paul might have been given his own set of tools. The requisite knives and awls would have made tent making an easily portable trade. A trade that Paul could fall back on to support himself as a traveling missionary when the need arose. And here in Thessalonica, that need arose. The need also arose when Paul was in the city of Corinth, and then also when Paul was in Ephesus. Now, It makes me quite sad that Paul felt the need to do this because while he was making tents, he could have been unhinderedly ministering to the many lost souls around him. Instead, he's making tents. I mean, think of all the hours that Paul used making tents when he could have been sharing the gospel with the lost around him. That said, Paul chose to do this so as to not be a burden to the Thessalonians. And while he was making tents, Paul was undoubtedly making tents for the glory of God, right? That's Paul. And he was undoubtedly redeeming the time for the glory of God while he was making the tents. So Paul isn't sulking in any way. No, he has no time to sulk. But still, 
It's my opinion that it would have been best for the church if they could have supported Paul and his friends. It would have been best if supporting them wouldn't have been any kind of burden to the Thessalonian believers. Note this. If possible, a church is called to provide for the financial needs of its full-time pastors and ministers. 1 Corinthians 9.14 says, The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And just as we pay people to prepare and serve our physical food, the call is to be willing to pay those who work hard at giving out our spiritual food. 1 Timothy 5.17-18 says it like this, Let the elders or pastors who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. What's the point there? Well, this, that the elders, pastors who serve the church well, especially the primary teachers and preachers of the word of God, they should receive double honor, which is simply talking about financial support. And just as it would be cruel to work an ox while denying it grain, the church should be sure to make sure that their faithful pastors are taken care of. Not rich, not rich, but taken care of so they can minister fully and effectively for the glory of God. So Paul didn't take any money from the Thessalonians so as to not be any kind of burden to them. And so he took that big burden onto himself, faithful servant and man of God that he was. But look, Paul did take wages from other churches who were able to pay him, and that's best. Because then Paul could give himself fully to the people and fully to the ministry without having to worry about making money for a living but uh, at physical labor other than ministry. But here... Paul reminds them very clearly that he's not greedy and he's not a user and he's not in the ministry for the money and he's a hard worker who solely desires to only glorify God and serve the people of God, seeing the lost saved and the saved growing in their faith. Clearly, undoubtedly, that's what Paul was about. That's Paul, that's Silvanus, that's Timothy. Look what Paul adds at the end of verse 9. Second, we preach to you the gospel of God. Paul keeps reminding them of this. Why does he keep reminding them of this? To remind the Thessalonian believers what Paul was all about. The gospel. The word gospel means good news, but note this. It's not Paul's good news. This is the good news of God, right? And that changes things. This stresses the divine origin and authority of the message of God. And it points to the greatness of the good news that they had imparted to the Thessalonians. This is God's gospel. This is God's good news, the ultimate good news. And that's why they were willing to proclaim it freely while working for their own living and also while suffering for the glory of God while proclaiming it because it was worth it. See, it was worth it. So Paul reminds them again that they preached the good news to the Thessalonians. What good news? This, that undeserving and vile sinners like us can be saved from eternity in hell by God's amazing grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone because of who He is and because of what He did on the cross. So look, the Bible is very clear that we're all sinners and sin has drastic wages, death. And that's not just talking about physical death, but it's also talking about spiritual death, talking about eternal punishment for sin. 
See, sin not only separates us from God, but sin condemns every person to hell, which is the just punishment for sin. You say, how is that just? How is that right? Hell for just one sin? That's right. Here's why. Because our God is an infinite God, and sin against an infinite God demands infinite wages. Therefore, either we pay the wages of our sin for an infinite amount of time in hell, or an infinite and truly worthy one pays for our sin once and for all, which is exactly what Jesus, God the Son, did on the cross for everyone who who believes. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This tells us that on the cross... God treated Jesus as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe even though he committed no sin. That means that on the cross, the believer's sin was not only put onto Christ as our substitute, but he was also punished as the believer's substitute for all that sick and all that vile sin that condemns us. Picture a courtroom scene. You have been accused of a crime and you're clearly guilty. All the evidence is against you. God's the judge and Satan is the accuser and the accuser has you right where he wants you. The punishment for your crime is the death penalty. And again, the case against you is ironclad. You are guilty. You did the crime. The verdict is given. Guilty. The sentence is death. And now they're going to take you away to be executed. Well, that's when a voice from the back rings out, Me for her. I will go instead. I'll take the punishment. I will pay the penalty. Someone responds, but you, Lord, never did anything wrong, not ever. And that person is guilty, guilty, guilty. We have her on multiple counts. Jesus says, no, put it all on me. I will pay the price. I will pay the sentence of death that's required. And that's what he did on the cross for everyone who believes on him in true, saving, repentant faith. He took our place as believers and died so we don't have to face eternity in hell. He was executed so that we who believe could live forever in eternal glory. He did all that for us. This is indeed the great exchange. Where our sin as believers was credited to Christ's spiritual account, which he paid for in full when he died on that cross, and his perfect righteousness was then credited to our spiritual account as believers, which fits us perfectly for heaven. And that's why sinners, wretched, terrible sinners like us can go to heaven, even though none of us deserves to, because Jesus took care of it for us on the cross. That's good news. Anyone? Right? That's good. That's God's good news. I can't make myself right with God, but God can make me right through the death of Christ in my place. And good news, for all who put their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, for all who trust in Jesus as a living person for forgiveness of sin and for eternal life with God, they will be saved from wrath. They will be forgiven of all their sin that condemns them. They will be declared righteous and right with God. And look, they will then have heaven as their eternal inheritance instead of hell because of Jesus. So, repent. Repent. Surrender to Christ and repent in faith and be saved today from the wrath to come. Good news? (laughs) Paul and his friends preached this amazing message, for isn't this what preachers and missionaries do? Right? Isn't this what all Christians who care do? Lord, help us to care. Third, Paul says that we justly, devoutly, and blamelessly behaved ourselves. Verse 10. 
You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. So Paul again appeals to what they clearly already knew. What's that? That Paul and his friends were godly men. They were men of integrity. They were men of honor. They were men of character. They were Christ-like men during the short few weeks that they were ministering there in the city of Thessalonica. And the Thessalonians couldn't deny that fact. They saw it. They witnessed it firsthand. And it was clear. But look, not only did the Thessalonians know this, but so does God. And ultimately, that's what really mattered to Paul. Yes, the Thessalonians could see Paul's character and his integrity. But more than anything else, God knows. right? And God sees And Paul is very comforted by that great truth. I pray that comforts you instead of scares you. The word devoutly speaks of someone who regards God and His law, who then earnestly seeks to fulfill the law of God, the commands of of God for the glory of God. The word speaks of an inner disposition that gives regard to the truth of God that then drives the person to behave in a way that's pleasing to God more and more and more based on your love for God. That's what describes Paul and his friends. The word uprightly describes a person who conducts his or her life according to the word and the will of God. Talking about the person who lives rightly, biblically, morally, and not just externally, but internally as well. So it starts in the heart. It then flows up and out to their actions, right and godly conduct. That's what describes Paul and his friends. The word blamelessly means to be without defect, without fault, without blemish. The idea is that the blameless person is the one who, when any kind of sinful charge is brought against them, that charge won't stick. And that's what described Paul and his friends. No, they weren't perfect, but they were godly, right? No, they weren't perfect, but they were seeking to glorify God. They were battling sin. Their motives were for God and and not for self. They were, they, there was no hidden life of sin. No, they were hating their sin and fighting sin day by day. And their love and their aim and their direction was clear, Christ. And so we find that Paul and his companions' life before the Thessalonians was such that it was, there was no legitimate ground for any kind of accusation. That doesn't mean that his enemies didn't accuse him because they did accuse him, but the charges against them didn't stick. So, no hidden sin or life of shame. No false motives, no hypocrisy, no bank account in the Cayman Islands, none of that. What you saw was what you got, and what you saw was three men who loved God, who served God, who preached the truth of God, who were out for the glory of God alone, and who sought to fulfill their ministry in a manner that pleased the God whom they passionately loved. That's it. That's it. That's who they were. Lord, help us to be more and more like them. Look what Paul says at the end of verse 11. This is how we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Now, why does he say that? Because they certainly conducted themselves in the same way among non-believers. So why does he say that? Because he wants these believers... To know that this is how believers are supposed to conduct themselves. See, true belief always leads to godly behavior. And Paul wants these Christians to understand that vital truth. The tense of the word believe speaks of continual belief. And here Paul is not just telling the Thessalonian Christians that true belief results of a lifestyle of loving obedience to the Lord. But he's also showing this to them 
through their own lives. He's an example. See, this is what Christians do. This is who we are. We love the Lord. We're growing more and more in the fruit of the Spirit. We're fighting sin and we're seeking God's glory. We're bearing spiritual fruit. And our love for Christ is seen in the way that we live our lives because, again, that's what Christians do. And Paul and his friends showed that to them. Now look, a vital saving faith is to be a continuing faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Why? Because while salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, look, the faith that truly saves is never alone. No. True faith always shows forth that faith with works, with godly actions, with loving obedience to the God who saved you. We are those who are compelled by love, see. And love is seen. Think of saving faith as a fire in the fireplace of a house. How can a person who's standing outside the house see the evidence of the fire in the fireplace? How? I mean, while the owner of the house might tell him that he has a fire going inside the house, the reality of the fire is only validated when the person sees the smoke coming out of the chimney. And for us in Christ, real saving faith will always result in smoke. <laughs> It'll result in a life that proves the reality of our faith and a life that proves the reality of our love. And Paul tells these Thessalonian Christians that that reality was clearly seen in the lives of the missionaries, just as it should be seen in everyone who truly believes and loves the Lord. Do you love Him? Right? Do you love Him? Then it will show. It has to show. Because that's what real love does. What about you? Does it show you you fighting to glorify God in your life because you love the Lord who saved your soul? You battling lust? You battling pride? You fighting for the God-pleasing life? You're not hiding anything? You're not a hypocrite when you come here and your spouse and children would affirm that truth? <laughs> Christians hate sin. We don't harbor sin. Christians love God for who He is and for what He's done. And that love is seen by the way we fight against it. That love is seen in what we pursue, what we look at, how we talk, how much we pray and, and read God's holy word, how we spend our time and our money and our talents and so on. What about you? Paul and his friends are good examples for us today. Fourth, Paul says, we exhorted, comforted, and charged you to walk worthy of God, verses 11 and 12. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is very, very serious. This expresses something that's extremely important to, to Paul. Look, it says, he exhorted them. The word exhorted means to urge someone to action, knowing that that's the best thing for them to do. The word speaks of a person encouraging someone and of helping them along in a hard time so that they now have confidence to do that hard thing. The word for comforted literally means to call alongside, and it pictures a person going up to a hurting and needy, needy soul, putting their loving arms around that needy soul and then whispering words of comfort into the ears of that needy soul in order to lovingly comfort and assist them in their time of need. The word charge means to implore and to beg earnestly and to even beg desperately. The word speaks of an anguished appeal that was often accompanied by tears. 
That's how Paul was exhorting these Christians to walk worthy. Paul then adds that he did this as a father does to his own children. Oh, we parents understand how serious Paul is, do we not? Um, Where we beg our children, we beg our children to not do that thing that will harm them, either physically or spiritually, where we implore them to not do it, where we warn them and we entreat them and we plead with them and we beseech them and we encourage them, often with tears, to not do that forbidden thing or else to do that godly thing because we know, we know that to do that forbidden thing will hurt their soul and we know that to not do it will bless their soul. We know. And that's how serious Paul was as he exhorted and comforted and charged the Thessalonian Christians to do what? To walk worthy of God. He's saying, please, please, walk worthy of God. You must walk worthy of God. This is best. This matters. This lasts. Please, walk worthy of God. Paul implores them and us with fervor and Probably with tears. Verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So in light of the fact that God has called us who believe to himself into his own glorious kingdom, which he has done, and in light of the fact that we in Christ have eternal glory to look forward to as an eternal inheritance, please, in light of all that, walk worthy See, God effectually calls every believer to Himself. God seeks us out and God's awake, God awakens us to Himself. God saves us for Himself and God also gives us His Spirit who helps us live out this Christian life to the very end and He will indeed see us through. And then in the near future, praise the Lord, God will take us home, eternal glory. Amen. Come on. Yes, can't wait. He does all that. And He gets all the glory. He rescues us. He redeems us. He saves us. He forgives us. He dies for us. He gives us life. Life, eternal life. And all the glory goes to Him. And love is what should now compel us in light of all that. Look what God has done for wretched sinners like us. Look what awaits us. Until then, in between our initial salvation and our homecoming in eternal glory, this. Please, walk worthy. Because of love. This is serious. This is what we must be about. Walking worthy. What does this mean? The word for worthy is from the Greek word axios. It refers to having the same weight as something else, like a set of scales that balance with the same weight on one side as on the other side of that scale. The word indicates equivalence. For example, a person worthy of his pay was a person whose day's work corresponded to his day's wages. Here we see that a person's walk is one side of the scale, and his calling to salvation and to eternal glory is the other side of the scale. And the idea then is this, that our manner of life weighs as much as the gospel that we profess to believe, that there's a corresponding balance between our profession and our practice. 
Look, our profession is that we are Christians. Our practice then is that we live like Christians, that we live like Christ himself more and more and more. So our conduct should balance the scales with the other side of the scale being Jesus and the salvation that he gives to those of us who believe. And while this is indeed something that will never be truly attained in in this life, this side of glory, look, this is to be our heartfelt and passionate aim and goal as lovers of Christ. And this is indeed something that we can be growing in more and more and more with God's Spirit who lives in us as our helper and with His mighty Word that's powerful for salvation and life at our fingertips. So, walk worthy more and more and more because you love Him and because He's worthy. That's the call. In Philippians 1.27, Paul tells these believers to let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. That's the same idea. The word conduct in Philippians is interesting, though, because it's the word used for citizenship. So in Philippians, Paul ties the word uh, in a worthy walk with understanding where your true home is. In Thessalonians, Paul says that a worthy walk... Um, you're, you're to walk worthy because of who you are, a Christian, a child of God, a soul that's been called out of darkness into his marvelous light with eternal glory awaiting you. And then in Philippians, he says the same thing, but just a little differently, walk worthy because of who you are, a citizen of heaven. Not good to remember. Where's your real home? And we know uh, God saved us. Heaven's waiting. Can't wait. But then in Philippians, he says, where's your real home? Here? Anybody glad it's not here? No, live in light of the reality that heaven's your real home. This is so vitally important for us to remember that we as Christians are registered citizens of heaven, that our names are there, our Father is there, our Savior is there, our home is there, our our fellow saints are there, and they will all end up, we will all end up there as believers, and our inheritance is there. So live in light of that reality because all the other stuff fades away. And most of us, For most of us, our citizenship is here in America, but the reality is that we in Christ are indeed citizens of heaven. Heaven is our true home. So why then would we try to live like this earth is? Well, a worthy walk lives like heaven is our true home, see. The Bible tells us that we are aliens here, we are strangers here, we are pilgrims who are only passing through here, and we can't forget that truth. So live up to that. Live like citizens of heaven. Live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reflect the transformation that's been wrought in us by the gospel. Have our daily conduct as Christians reveal that we really are pilgrims and strangers here on earth. Remember that we are citizens of a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God, Hebrews 11.10. Live like we truly are citizens of a better country that is a heavenly one, Hebrews 11.16. And live like we really do belong to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and of myriads of angels, Hebrews 12.2. Don't you see? This world is not our home. So glad. Stop being so tied down by this world and the things in it. And live like a true Christian. Live like a true citizen of heaven should live. Live worthy. Balance the scales because you love the Lord. And you want to glorify Him. In 1 Peter, Peter calls Christians pilgrims. As an encouragement for suffering Christians who are being tortured and killed by that psycho Nero. Not only... Nero not only persecuted Christians and he not only killed Christians, but he loved doing it. 
Nero had many parties at night in his gardens, and to give light for his enjoyment, Nero would nail Christians on crosses and light them on fire to serve as torches to light up the party as the people celebrated. Within a few months, Christians were imprisoned, racked, seared, broiled, burned, scourged, stoned, and hanged. Others were lacerated with hot knives, and some were thrown under the horns of wild bulls. Peter himself was put to death under Nero's persecution, and it's no wonder why Peter starts off his first letter by calling these Christians pilgrims. Why? Because they desperately needed to remember that fact, and so do we. Look, this world has nothing lasting to offer to us. So, Stop trying to live worthy of this sinful world. This world's joys are fading and fleeting. This world's goods all rust and rot and they never truly satisfy. This world is miserable. This world is empty. Stop trying to live worthy of it. What this world has to offer leads to emptiness and vanity and misery. Because Jesus Christ alone is the only one who can truly, truly satisfy. Hey, live worthy of Him. Not this empty, futile, fading, fleeting world. Jesus alone can fill the void. He alone saves and forgives and rescues. He alone gives true purpose and and true meaning. And He ensures a wonderful eternal life in glory soon to come. And He alone makes everything else seem meaningless because it is. In light of Him. Please. Please, I'm begging you, as Paul would say, Please stop trying to live worthy of this world that will leave you empty and groping. No, live worthy of God. The one who saves and brings joy in the midst of this fast and fading life. That matters. That lasts. How do I do that? Well, there's many ways found in the Word of God. Be godly, be Christ-like, battle sin, pursue the glory of God in your life, obey. Many, many ways. According to God's word, a worthy walk is a walk in truth, in faith, in the Holy Spirit, in the fear of God, in purity, in good works, in fruitfulness, in steadfastness, in joy, in thankfulness, in obedience, in holiness. How how about that? According to God's word, a worthy walk is a walk in love. In light as opposed to darkness, in Christ-likeness, in growing knowledge of God, in wisdom, in unity, and so on. So a worthy walk is a godly walk, a biblical walk, a growing walk, a holy walk, an obedient walk, a loving walk, more and more and more. That said, let's just focus on a few of the aspects of a worthy walk, knowing that this isn't a comprehensive list. If you remember back in Ephesians, it was in chapter 4 that Paul beseeched the Christians to walk worthy, and then he went on to give some specifics of what a worthy walk looks like. So I want to review just a few of those things. Look what he mentioned. Walk worthy, how? In all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And those are some of the qualities that make for a worthy walk. So let's just briefly look at them and be challenged by them and be encouraged by them, knowing that there's many, 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 many other ways to walk worthy of God. First, Paul says that a worthy walk walks in all lowliness. The word for lowly literally means to think or to judge with lowliness. It speaks of humiliation of mind, lowly thinking, unpretentious behavior, a humble attitude, and a being without arrogance. The word indicates the esteeming of oneself as small and of recognizing one's own insufficiency, but at the same time recognizing the powerful sufficiency of God. 
So it's not really about lowering ourselves. It's about lifting God and others up. And if we concentrate on lifting God and others up, well, putting ourselves down will really take care of ourselves because we're all about God and others first. This word is interesting because neither the Romans nor the Greeks had a word for humility. See, to them, humility was a pitiable weakness that was to be scorned and to be despised. Slaves were lowly and they said, we are not slaves. We're too good to be slaves. But the New Testament turns the despised idea of humility and lowliness of mind up on its head. This is indeed a godly quality. And while the world around us exalts pride and exalts ego, we in Christ are called to lower ourselves and exalt Him and others. Matthew 5.3 says it well when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it's talking about spiritual poverty, about true humility, about lowliness of mind. What's that? Utter dependence on the Lord, first for salvation, and then where you remain there as you live out your Christian life. Here's the idea. I am a beggar in need of bread. Jesus fed me and he gave me everything. And I am nothing without him. In light of that, I can serve you. I can turn the other cheek. I can forgive you in light of Christ. I can lower myself and exalt Christ in you ahead of myself. I can walk worthy more and more because I'm nothing without him. And now that I have him, I have everything. That's the idea. How would that reveal itself? In not bragging about yourself. In serving others without wanting something back. And and not being defensive. And being quick to forgive. And and not being jealous of others. But being happy for them when good things happen to them. And turning the other cheek. And not having to win every argument. And being teachable. And being compassionate. And minimizing the sins and the shortcomings of others. And guarding your tongue. And choosing to edify rather than cut down. And so on. A worthy walk is a lowly walk where we lower ourselves so that he can be raised higher. William Carey, a worthy walker, who was the father of modern missions and a missionary to India in the early 1800s, he has a grave in Serampore, India. I had the privilege of seeing that a few years back. His tombstone says this, A wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. That's the kind of lowliness that Paul is talking about here. Not the lowliness that depresses you and that causes you to wallow around and do nothing because you're just depressed. No. Rather, the lowliness that propels you forward in love and adoration and heartfelt obedience to this amazing God who saved your wretched lost soul and who set His love on you. That's the view of the maturing, growing Christian. That's the attitude of someone who is walking worthy more and more and more. What else? Gentleness. Paul says, gentleness describes the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. <laughs> In the New Testament, gentleness or meekness is described by three attitudes. One, submissiveness to the will of God. Two, teachability. And three, consideration for others. See, in a world full of pride, in in a world that's self-centered and arrogant and boastful and self-indulgent, we as Christians are called to be gentle and humble and selfless and considerate and meek like Christ was. It's interesting to note that this word in secular Greek was used to describe a soothing wind, a healing medicine, and a cult that had been broken. Talking about 
power under control. And while you can indeed react and lash out and be harsh, you restrain that humbly for the glory of God. See, gentleness casts self aside, it exalts the Lord, and it treats others accordingly, and the worthy walking Christian will be growing in this godly quality. I can react, but I choose not to for the glory of God. Third, a worthy walker is long-suffering. Long-suffering means patience, tolerance, long-tempered, or being slow to wrath. It's the opposite of impatience. See, God, our God, is a long-suffering God. He's a patient God. Anybody? He's slow to anger. He never loses his temper. He doesn't have a short fuse. He doesn't make snap decisions. And uh, look at how much he puts up with us. And because he's long-suffering, then it only makes sense that we as children will be patient and long-suffering ourselves. This applies to us in a couple of different ways. First, it means that we are patient and long-suffering when it comes to this Christian life. It means that we endure through it all, that we persevere to the very end without quitting. There's no quitting. There's no quitting. And without slowing down, without losing our zeal for the glory of God, you keep going. You endure for the glory of God. You stay focused and patient until He finally calls you home. We as people like instant gratification. But Christians are those who understand that the best is yet to come and we're willing to wait for that. Long-suffering means that we don't give in to compromise. It means that we don't get tired of the fierce battle that we are in, but we keep battling. The battle against sin, the battle against the flesh, the battle against the devil. We keep fighting. We keep getting up every time we fall, and we keep fighting on until the day we breathe our last breath. It's a no-quit, no-compromise attitude until glory. What about you? Come on now. This is what Christians do. There's no quitting in Christianity. That just came to me. You're welcome. (laughs) Long-suffering also means that we are patient and slow to wrath toward others. I think that's probably the main application of this in this context, but worthy walkers do both. It means that we're patient and gentle with one another (laughs) and not resentful. That we bless and curse not, that we bear insults and injuries without malice, that we are slow to anger and we are quick to turn the other cheek. Long suffering reflects an emotional calm in the midst of provocation or misfortune. It expresses the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate. It's the ability to hold one's feelings in restraint or bear up under the oversights and wrongs afflicted by others upon you without seeking revenge. I can take it for the glory of God. Just like Christ took it. One said, long-suffering is bearing patiently with the foibles, faults, and infirmities of others. That's right. So even when people aggravate you and bug you and make you mad and make you angry, long-suffering bears these things patiently and in a Christ-like manner, such as God has shown us. That's another mark of a person who's walking worthy. It, It hits... Every aspect of our lives. Fourth, according to Paul in Ephesians, a worthy walker bears with one another in love. The word bear means to put up with, to tolerate, and to forbear. It pictures restraint under provocation, and it includes generous allowances for the faults and failures of others. The word is in the present tense, which means that this is to be the continual happening in our lives as Christians. And look, how are we to do this? In love, 
in love. They'll know we are Christians by our love, and we do this in love. The Greek word for love is the word agape, which is a distinctly Christian quality. Agape love is true only for us in Christ because agape love is a godly love, a a covenant love, a family love, a love that is given to Christians from God himself specifically for us. And the call here is clear to be lovingly forbearing and tolerant of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And don't we need that? Ain't none of us here perfect. This is what we need. And The calling isn't just to be loving to one another, but to be bearing with one another in love, to be excelling in this love, to be overflowing in this love, to be exalting Christ in the way that we love one another. Love like this says, I can let it go. I can forgive you. I can choose to not make a big deal out of this. I don't need to confront you on this. I'll just let it go. I can just... Move forward and move ahead, letting the love flow, letting the forgiveness flow, giving people the benefit of the doubt, not being so sensitive, focusing on glorifying the Lord in this body. Worthy walkers bearing with one another in love more and more and more. That's who we are. Is that true of you? Fifth, worthy walkers keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, Paul says. What's that mean? That worthy walkers are those who eagerly keep making every effort to guard the oneness of the unity in the body of Christ, the church. That's not easy. Because Satan is always, always working. He loves doing his work within the church, too. And we're here with a bunch of other sinners. (laughs) Man, none of us here has arrived, and so we need to work at this, but that's what worthy walkers do. So forgive and unite under the banner of Christ and help and don't gossip and come together for the glory of God as much as you can. This is what worthy walkers do. So here's a question. Is God pleased? God sees, God knows, is God pleased with you? With me? We want Him to be pleased. For soon, we will indeed be in glory. Well, Paul has defended himself and his friends very well. And even though the Thessalonian Christians knew the truth about Paul and his friends because they had seen it firsthand, ultimately, the thing that comforted Paul the most was that God himself knew the truth. And we are those who are out to please and to glorify our God because we love him so very, very, very much. So, Lord, help us to be God-pleasing, worthy-walking, Christ-exalting, sin-fighting, heavenly-minded, spirit-filled Christians here whose aim is to glorify the God whom we love with passion until He takes us home. Till the very day that He takes us home for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your holy Word and for godly men who are examples to us. I pray that we would learn from these examples and that we here would be pursuing the worthy walking life. That we would examine ourselves and see where we are falling short. That you would reveal our blind spots so that we can walk worthy more and more and more for your glory. So Lord, help us. Encourage us. May we encourage one another. And I pray that we would grow in this for your glory. Use us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.